We're in the final stretch of our nearly 15 months in the book of Acts, with only one more sermon remaining in the book of Acts uh, next week. But today we're going to pick up in the first half of the uh, last chapter of Acts, Acts 28. And Paul, along with 275 others that were on the grain ship uh, that had been broken apart as it shipwrecked on what they would find out to be the coast of Malta. And so Paul has been on his way to Rome, and he's now only 58 miles south of Sicily at one of the narrowest portions of the Mediterranean Sea. So he's almost there. Every life on the ship has been saved, as was promised to Paul by God, including the ship's crew, the soldiers that were, being, that were there, the prisoners that they were transporting, every life has been saved. And even though Luke doesn't really play up the ancient meaning of the name of Malta, its ancient meaning of the island's name means refuge. And that certainly is what that is for where they're going to spend the next three months before completing their journey uh, into Rome. So we're going to read today in Acts 28, verses 1 through 16. Acts 28, 1 through 16. So here now the reading of God's word. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all, because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened onto his hand. When the people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said, This must be a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting it at Syracuse, we waited there for three days. And from there, we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up. And on the second day, we came to Puteoli. Then we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Apius and the three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with a soldier who guarded him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray that through the working of your spirit in our lives that you would teach us from this passage of scripture this morning. We thank you for faithful servants who have gone before us and who have taught us how to live godly and Christ-like lives, and that we may follow their example, and the example specifically of Paul as he follows you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple of weeks ago, uh, my wife and I had the opportunity to go to Greece uh, with some of my former colleagues. And, and then the trip was great, but I think the thing we were least excited about was the flight that was just over 11 hours there and back. And especially on the way back, um, it was going to be a rather long day, 
and arriving in Greece time back in Little Rock about uh, 4 a.m. Uh, Greece time. So even though it was early evening here, uh, the, the, the time change was a bit, of a, a, a bit of a struggle. And so my strategy was to sleep most of the flight. But one of the things I did enjoy uh, from time to time was on the entertainment screens that they have in front of you is a flight tracker. And it shuffles through various views, and it'll show you things, you know, step by step. And it'll show you kind of little dots and label cities and points of interest on the right and left as you fly through. And you're kind of seeing things go one by one. And then they shuffled through a view of the cockpit where it showed you kind of your heading and the airspeed and the, whether you had a tailwind or a headwind and, and all of those type of things. But what I really enjoyed most seeing on that screen was a view that we didn't get until we had landed in Chicago. And it was a global view of our final flight path all the way from Athens to Chicago. And it was kind of interesting to me to see the path. I knew we weren't gonna fly in a straight line from Athens to Chicago, but how much of a curvature of the, of the flight that we took kind of surprised me and what part of, of Europe that we flew over. We flew a lot of the way through Romania and then Austria and Germany. We flew all the way east and north over the United Kingdom. And then kind of south, we hit Greenland and Iceland, came down southwest a ways through Canada, over the Great Lakes, and then finally into Chicago. And I titled today's message, meta-narratives from Malta. Because what we've really been doing is kind of what we've, we was talking about earlier was we've been taking a step-by-step -step view through the book of Acts. We've been looking at each of these narratives, each of these passages on their own, and kind of looking at, okay, what can we learn from each of these? And what I really want us to do is to take all of those narratives and combine them into three themes and really have what was that kind of, kind of final flight path view to see where we came from Athens to Chicago to see where we've been and what we can learn from that. So today is really gonna be a very zoomed out view of where we are rather than just looking today at the specific step-by-step -step through this passage in the book of Acts. And the themes that we have chosen, they aren't just true for the first century church. They're just as applicable for us today. And they're things that we should learn as we as we've really made our final descent and landing, and Dan finishes up Acts next week, there are themes that have been throughout the book of Acts that we've hit on them before, but I want to hit on them again as we come to the conclusion. And so the first one of those, the first theme that I really want to hit on, the first meta narrative, is that God is faithful to his promises. God is faithful to his promises. And so, and no surprise, as we read in Acts 28, we find Paul in another perilous situation, as we seem to for nearly every chapter that we've, that we've been with Paul. And he's trying to be helpful, and he's, he's, they, the, the natives of the island have built a fire, and Paul's being helpful. He's gathering some sticks to throw onto the fire. Well, out comes, because of this heat, a viper not only bites his hand, but bites his hand, and as the English Standard Version says, fastened onto it, or wouldn't let go of his hand. And so to the natives of the island, this was, must be a sign that Paul was a murderer. Even though he survived 14 days in a storm at sea and then a shipwreck, justice was finally going to get this guy that was a prisoner. He wasn't going to escape from justice. But to everyone's surprise, Paul shook off the snake and was just fine, suffering no ill effects whatsoever as they were sitting there watching, waiting for his hand to start to swell in some manner or for him to die from this bite that we can only assume must be 
some type of venomous snake. And when they saw that there wasn't any ill effect from this, the natives then changed their mind and thought, well, well, this must be some kind of God. Well, if we think back, God had yet to fulfill the promise of Acts 23, 11, And that verse is really central to the final section of the book of Acts. That where he, the risen Christ appeared to Paul in his prison cell and told Paul that just as he had testified of him in Jerusalem, he must also testify of him in Rome. So Paul wasn't harmed to this latest threat to his life of a snake. And if we think through, Paul was really no stranger to physical harm. And if you look at 2 Corinthians 11.24, if you start there, Paul gives what I would consider an unenviable resume of his suffering for Christ up to the point where he wrote 2 Corinthians. And that was about five years before this incident took place. And we know just recently he'd survived a mob, two years in prison, two assassination attempts on his life while he was under Roman guard, a 14-day storm, a shipwreck, and now the snake bite on Malta. But in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty four, Paul says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, and toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, and hunger and thirst, often without food, and cold and exposure. And apart from, and from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. And I don't think anyone would doubt that Paul suffered for the cause of Christ. And why would he do this? Why would Paul continue to go through so much agony and hardship and toil and suffering? It's because he firmly believed in the promises of God. He wrote to the church in Thessalonica, in 2 Thessalonians 3.3, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and he will guard you against the evil one. Turn with me to 2 Timothy 1. And Paul writes this to, uh, to Timothy in his second epistle to him, where he writes of faith, the faithfulness of God while he's imprisoned in Rome. And in 2 Timothy 1, 6 through 14, he writes to Timothy, for this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying out of my hands. For God has not given us a, a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which has now been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. And in the second chapter, in 11 through 13 in 2 Timothy, he puts in a saying from the early church. This saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And what we take from that is God's faithfulness to us doesn't depend upon us. 
God's faithfulness in no way depends on, our, uh, on us. It depends on the nature and the character of God who cannot deny himself and cannot deny what he's promised. So like Paul, what promises are there from God that we can take comfort in because of the faithfulness of God? And I looked up several, and this is by no means an extensive list, but there's 11 that I came up with, and then a few after that that we'll get into, uh, promises of God to us. In Isaiah 41.10, God promises that we can't not to fear, for I am with you. I will uphold you. He's promised in Isaiah 26.3 to keep us in perfect peace if our minds are stayed on him. In Deuteronomy 31.8, he's promised to never leave us or forsake us. In Psalm 32.8, he's promised to instruct us in the way in which we should go. Matthew 11.29, he's promised to give us rest for our souls. In Isaiah 40.31, he's promised to renew our strength. In Jeremiah 29, 11, he's promised to give us a hope and a future. In Romans 8, 28, he's promised to cause all things to work together for our good. Philippians 4, 19, he's promised to supply all of our needs. In 2 Peter 1, 3, he's promised to give us everything we need for life and godliness. In 1 John 5, 14, he's promised to answer our prayers. And all these things are wonderful and comforting things. And we would do well to remind ourselves of them from time to time. And we should take these promises and rest upon these promises because we know that God will be faithful to those promises. But we're not just promised peace and prosperity in this life. In John 16, we're promised that in this world, we will have tribulation. But then given the counter promise of that, that we're to be of good cheer because Christ has overcome the world. In John 15, 20, we're promised that if they persecuted Christ, they'll also persecute us. We're also promised that what God started in our lives in the work of salvation, those he predestined, those he called, those he justified, and ultimately leading to our future glorification, that all of that will be continued to the end when Christ comes back to this earth to make all things new. And Paul writes that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So we have the, all these promises from God, but we don't just rely, but we, and we rely on those promises, but we also have the promise that hard times will come our way, but we have the promise from God also that he will be with us and that he'll be with and, and take care of us until the very end. So in this instance on Malta and throughout the life of Paul, and really throughout the entire book of Acts, even we think back to the stoning of Stephen where he saw the heavens opened, through the persecution of Peter and John, other believers that are mentioned in the book of Acts, we have seen God be faithful to his promises to be with them in their time of tribulation and suffering and the furthering of the gospel throughout the world. So just as untold number of believers throughout the years, all across the globe, who have lived peacefully, or those who have suffered for Christ, we can have the same certainty that God will be faithful to his promises for us today. So we know that God is faithful to his promises. Second, one of the main things that we should take away from the book of Acts is the Holy Spirit works 
in powerful ways. The Holy Spirit works in powerful ways. Back on Malta in verse 7, Publius, who's described as a chief man of the island, had shown them great hospitality, but it was made known to them that his father was laying sick with, with a fever and, and dysentery, GI symptoms. And what we're told is historically that there was known to be a microbe in goat's milk that could cause this. And this fever and these GI symptoms could last for, for months, even years, uh, and there really wasn't any treatment for it. So Paul went to visit this man, prayed for him, laid hands on him, and the man was healed. Of course, news of something like this would travel fast through an island the size of Malta. So multiple people came uh, seeking to be healed of various diseases and illnesses that they had. But one of the things to note on this is that in, in all of the healings that we read throughout the book of Acts is the focus on the role of the Spirit uh, in Paul through healing, the role of prayer, and not any innate ability of Paul to heal on his own. It was always the work of the Spirit. Of course, from the very first chapter of Acts, right before Christ ascends, he promises that they would receive power after the Holy Spirit comes upon them. We have the coming of the Holy Spirit powerfully at Pentecost in Acts 2, where we see many miraculous signs and wonders done throughout the Holy Spirit. We've talked about this, and I've preached on this in more detail before, but it, it, it's, it's my belief and the belief of this church that these extraordinary gifts, these sign gifts, the healings and things like this, were given to the apostles for a very limited time in church history to authenticate the message of Jesus Christ in the gospel. And that's been the majority view for 2,000 years of church history, that these gifts disappeared with the passing of the apostles up until about the last 100 years. I've heard those that believe in the current use of these gifts and that, that we should seek to reclaim these gifts, that they believe that we're restraining the Spirit's power and that we could see a greater working of the Spirit as, we, as can be in the book of Acts. But there's something that we're doing that's standing in the way and that we need to be more open to see this work again. But that begs the question to me, does the absence of these gifts constitute a lesser working of the Spirit today just because we don't see people coming forward and being healed and things like that in church today? Is there something being withheld from us that we're not tapping into that God's holding back? Because Christ said in John 16 that it was good that he went away because if he didn't, then he couldn't send the Holy Spirit. So what does the Bible say that the Spirit does for us today? And just like the promises, looked up several of these things through several books and came up with, decided on 15 things in the way that the Spirit works in our lives and the way that the Spirit works in the world. We read in Titus 3, 4 through 6, that the Spirit regenerates us. In Romans 8, 10 through 11, the Spirit brings us from spiritual death to spiritual life. The whole uh, chapter of Galatians 5, the Holy Spirit sanctifies us. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, the Holy Spirit transforms us into the image of Christ. In John 16, 7-8, we find that he'll convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. John 14.26, depending on the, the translation you use, we, he's a helper, he's an advocate, he's a counselor sent to us by Christ. 1 Corinthians 3.16, he dwells within each believer. Ephesians 1, 17-20, he gives us wisdom and revelation. In John 16, 13, he guides us into all truth. In 1 Corinthians 12, the Holy Spirit is the source of spiritual gifts. In Ephesians 1, 13, we find that the Holy Spirit is the seal, the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. In Romans 8, 26 through 27, the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness and he guides us 
as we pray. Romans 8, 14 through 16, he makes our adoption as sons and daughters of God possible. In Romans 5, 3 through 5, he imparts God's love to us. In Romans 15, 13, he gives us hope. The great theologian Sinclair Ferguson wrote that the first action of the Holy Spirit in Genesis was that of extending God's presence into creation in such a way as to order and complete what has been planned in the mind of God. And that is exactly the role that the Spirit characteristically fulfills elsewhere in Scripture. That the Spirit orders or reorders and ultimately beautifies God's creation. So indeed, the Spirit is powerfully at work today in our lives, as He has been throughout the pages of Scriptures, back through Genesis 1. And as part of the triune God, ordering and reordering our lives according to God's plan in each stage of God's work of salvation. And so may we seek to glorify the Holy Spirit who is still powerfully at work in our lives today. And then third, Christ will build his church and it will stand against all odds. Christ will build his church and it will stand against all odds. Reading the final six verses of the details of the journey of, of Paul going into Rome, and he finds believers there. His letter to Romans had been written three years earlier prior to his arrival, in which he expressed this longing and desire to visit them. He wrote in Romans 15, 29, I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. And he certainly did. And then back to the verse that I said was central to the last eight chapters of the book of Acts in his prison cell in Acts 23, 11, where Christ told him that he must also testify of him in Rome. Now, historically, in Rome, things were not favorable to Christians at this point. Nero was the emperor and was certainly no friend of the church. Many horrible things that we can read of what he did in the persecution of Christians. They're tortured and persecuted, and their lives ended in horrendous ways throughout the empire, but especially in the capital city, with Nero taking delight in this. So Paul had literally just walked into the belly of the beast of what was against Christ. As we think back to Christ's promise in Acts 1-8, right before his ascension, that his disciples would be witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and all Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And I'm sure someone like Paul taking the gospel to the Gentiles in Rome was far beyond their comprehension at that point in time as they stood there hearing Christ say this right before he ascended. Yet we see the power of God manifested through the coming of the Spirit in Acts 2 with people believing from all known corners of the world. As some have written, in, as you read in Acts 2, there's basically a table of the nations at that point in time that have listened, that heard the gospel in their own language. They in turn went and took the gospel to their own homes and shared it with others. Missionary activity, specifically documented by of Paul, documented by Luke, grew the church throughout Asia Minor and into Europe. Think back to Matthew 16, 18, where Christ says, On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Meaning, as one commentator writes, the gates of hell represent the imprisoning power of death. Not even death itself will be able to imprison and hold the church of the living God. The church, not meaning a, a building or an establishment, but the, the people, the body of Christ, was built throughout the book of Acts against all odds, against social odds that were against them, against religious obstacles that they faced, against political obstacles. Yet it grew and it grew. And even through persecution, horrible persecution, it withstood any attempts to stop it. 
and throughout the last 2,000 years has certainly seen conditions that are favorable for its growth in certain countries and conditions that have been unfavorable. Yet there's always been a remnant of true believers that make up the church of Christ. Now, as we look at the landscape in America right now, some would say we see a church that's starting to dwindle. With people of all generations, but especially the younger generations, abandoning religion altogether. We see a society and, and laws and things that are being passed that are becoming less and less favorable to Christianity. A government that's really wanting to cut ties with so-called traditional biblical values. Should that scare us? Should that worry us? And my answer to that would be no, based on the book of Acts. Because our job is to be faithful to the Great Commission in our time, in our place, to which we've been placed and which we've been called. If we're to be like Paul, we should proclaim Christ whenever and wherever we have the opportunity. We should be biblically and doctrinally sound. We should be humble and gracious, tactful and respectful to those who are leaders, even if they believe contrary to us, not even if they believe contrary to us, even if they're outright opposed to us, so that our lives earn the respect of those around us. And yes, outright persecution may come to us at some point in our lives. Yet we would do well to heed the example of Peter and John in Acts 5, where they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And then every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. As Paul wrote in Romans 5, 3 through 5, not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Daryl Bach, who's one of my professors in seminary, wrote a commentary on the book of Acts. And he wrote this as his final paragraph as he was concluding his commentary on the book of Acts. The theological premise of Acts is that Jesus is Lord of all, and so the gospel can go to all. Luke's message is this. Be reassured, the unhindered progress of God's words about salvation to all people is occurring by God's direction, fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ, according to the long-revealed promise of Scripture to Israel, and despite opposition. The new religion is really an old one, rooted in God's promise and direction. The word will get out. In fact, despite all the obstacles we see in Acts, the book ends with the gospel going out unhindered. For wherever the gospel is shared, there is offered an open door to the presence of God, no matter how tension-filled or restricted life is. God is the hero of Acts, and the plot line is how he reveals his word through Jesus and a faithful church. God will make sure that it happens, and so will a faithful church. As we look at where we've been over the last year in Luke's narrative of Acts, we should remember that God is always faithful to his promises, that the Holy Spirit is still powerfully at work today, just as he was in the book of Acts, and that Christ will build his church, and that it will stand against all odds. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for who you are and for what you've done. We thank you for your steadfast love and for your unfailing promises. Thank you for Christ who secured our redemption and is building his body in the church in spite of whatever else may be happening socially, politically, or religiously around us. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who comforts us, who guides us, who intercedes for us, is the seal of our inheritance that awaits us until Christ will come again 
to rule and reign again for all eternity. For all these things in your name.